Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. Remember here we have a spiritual view of the church and realities normally invisible are revealed so that we might know them. Verse 8 And when he had taken the book the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors which are the prayers of saints. And they sung a new song saying Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation and hast made us unto our God kings and priests and we shall reign on the earth. And I beheld And I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand and thousands of thousands sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Our text has given us occasion to enter into some consideration of angels. Here they are represented as an innumerable company surrounding the church and worshiping God. Angels have always been a very large consideration in the history of religion broadly and in the history of Christianity up to the modern era. With the rise of modernism, considerations concerning angels fell out of some circles as theological and modern liberalism ate up everything. But in reform circles, we also find that there's a real hesitancy to uh, address matters concerning angels. Last week we had an opportunity to look at two doctrines with respect to angels. First of all, man's knowledge of angels is limited to what has been revealed in Scripture. We must be very careful not to allow our imaginations to run wild, nor are we to let uh, traditions govern our understanding concerning the angelic creatures but God's word. And second, although it seems very simple, we should be mindful that angels are creatures. Angels are great beings. Almost inconceivably intelligent and wise. Very powerful. And yet, in the great divide between creator and creature, they are with us. 
and like unto us creatures and you should remember that there is no such thing as a demigod or a semi-god that is oxymoronic and nonsensical they are creatures like us and always remember when John fell down in front of the angel to worship the response of the angel was rise to your feet I am simply a fellow servant like unto yourself creatures not to be worshipped this morning I want to introduce our subject matter with a very famous and now old question you will know it and you will have heard it how many angels can dance on the head of a pin anyway this is in the uh, modern era it's come to mean something like why are we talking about these questions that ultimately don't have answers or why are we talking about questions of no practical importance so sometimes you'll hear people use it in that way this is one of those questions like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin if you could find an answer which you probably can't would it matter after all but this question is actually much older than the modern age it was originally a criticism of scholastic medieval theology and its speculations uh, speculations in all fields really but uh, speculations in the field of angelology in particular scholasticism really did address this kind of question and so if you read um, the large books of uh, commentaries on the Lombard sentences or Thomas Aquinas's Summa you will find these kinds of questions not this exact question but these kinds of questions addressed and you will think to yourself how would they ever think that they could get answers to these kinds of questions you have to understand that the schoolmen and that's what scholasticism means it's the theology done in the universities and the schools the schoolmen were very optimistic about what reason could do starting with nature and the scriptures and they were pretty confident that they could answer most any question if given enough time and enough reflection I should say here I don't want to be too critical I do believe that we can uh, derive much truth from what are called the good and necessary consequences of the scripture uh, our reasoning powers operating upon what has been revealed but I'm not as optimistic as the schoolmen that questions such as this can be answered what is behind this question this, this is, was actually when the reformers used it to poke fun at the schoolmen uh, there was actually a very serious question behind it what is an angel anyway does it have a body there were some that believed that angels were what's called incorporeal spiritual beings with no material substance or body at all uh, you'd have to and you start to see the relevance of the question if you believe that angels have no substance no material bodies at all how many could occupy a particular place well an infinite 
number could uh, occupy because there's no, they're not taking up any space or using up any space as it were. But if you believe that they had material bodies, maybe some sort of slight, light, and ethereal body, almost like a gas or a vapor or some sort of thing, then, of course, the question comes up, well, how many of them could occupy a given space? And this is the sort of the question that the schoolmen did ask. How many angels could occupy a given space? How big were they? How much room did they take up if you started on the assumption that they did have bodies? This brings us to this morning's doctrine that angels are incorporeal spirits. When we look at the balance of scripture, it does not appear that they have bodies, material bodies of any kind. The idea that they had some sort of light and ethereal body is an old idea. This was the doctrine of the old Jewish rabbis. A great many of the old church fathers, names you would know, Justin Martyr, Origen, Tertullian, the great Latin apologist, uh, Basil the Great, great Trinitarian theologian. And this was an idea that had... Uh, important practical consequences ultimately the year was 787 and there was a second ecumenical council of Nicaea you will no doubt be well familiar by now with the first the year was 325 under the uh, oversight or under the oversight and supervision of Constantine the Great we're talking about a second Uh, ecumenical council held at Nicaea much later 787 and the great uh, topic at that meeting was the worship of images they had just passed through an an era of what was called iconoclasm the worship of angels had sprung up in the church I'm sorry the worship of images had sprung up in the church And uh, there was a movement against this. It was called iconoclasm, basically the destruction of icons or images. And the Second Council of Nicaea met in order to address these questions. At the Second Council of Nicaea, there was an argument presented. um, The argument of John of Thessalonica. Not very much is known about this John. But he started with the assumption that Angels have bodies. They are ethereal, refined bodies, but they do have bodies, so they can be depicted. You can make a visible representation of them. And they often appeared in human form, so there is some precedent for depicting them. The council adopted his view and ended up sanctioning not only the making of images, but the worshiping of them as well. So you can see that sometimes questions that seem to us to be of very little importance can have profound consequences indeed. There's a great uh, saying of R.C. Sproul, ideas have consequences. If you ever want to see a large demonstration of this, I don't think it's fully accurate, but it is interesting. Francis uh, uh, Schaeffer's The God Who Is There. Uh, very interesting on how ideas make uh, 
make their way from schools and philosophers whom almost nobody knows into the life of popular thought. And it's very interesting. He does a lot to show how ideas make it from the ivory tower into the popular mind. But they do have a tendency to make their way. Here you have a John of Thessalonica about whom we know next to nothing. And his idea has made its way out into the popular mind and affected religion from that time to the present day. The view in the West, however, changed. From the Second Council of Nicaea in 787 to the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the view of the West concerning angels changed. The Fourth Lateran Council uh, decreed that angels did not have bodies, that they were incorporeal spirits. You can also begin to see why Protestants said that councils often contradicted one another. Here you have yet another example of it. And uh, even into the time of the Reformation, although most of the view of the West had changed, some did still hold the, the older view. For those of you that are interested in, in church history, among the Roman Catholics, Cardinal Cajetan, Luther's, uh, one of Luther's great opponents and enemies, still believed that angels had these ethereal bodies. There were some uh, reformers less known to us, but men very important in their day. Some of you will know the name of Zanchius and Vosius. Both of these men believed that angels had bodies of some kind why would they think this this is actually uh, it's a very serious idea tied to some very serious questions we start with the idea that angels are finite creatures this we are sure of they are not omnipresent nor are they eternal that means they are related to space and time space and time in other words when you read the scripture and this is pretty easy to see they are not in all places but you see their relationship to space and time when they are said to be at one place at one time and another place at another time place and time space and time but uh, philosophers have recognized that space and time are concepts that are related to material bodies. So space is not a thing, it's a concept. And it's a concept that requires at least two material bodies. They have a spatial relationship one to another or a relationship of extension so you need matter in order to have a concept of space and time is material bodies changing in their spatial relationship one to another in other words matter and motion and a brain an observing brain charts time by these things now the question comes up how can an angel have a relationship to space and time if he doesn't have a material body. You see, you see the problem. If space and time require matter, how is an angel going to be 
related to space and time and limited by space and time if there is no material body. So their solution was that angels have material bodies. I want you to notice something here about theological method. Notice that the concerns here are primarily philosophical and not biblical considerations really at all. This is also one of the um, governing problems of scholasticism. Sometimes it did have a lot more to do with Plato and Aristotle than it did with uh, Matthew and Paul. Well, you can see that if you arrived at this conclusion that they have a um, physical body of some kind, then questions about how large are they, how many can you fit in a limited space, would be valid questions. Perhaps they can't be answered, but it does raise the question. How big are they? And how many of them can fit in a particular space? As over against this old view, I do think on balance... The scripture teaches that uh, that the angels have uh, are spiritual in nature and that they don't have material bodies at all. So here, over against this philosophical reasoning, we place the testimony of scripture. And first of all, you can go to any good systematic theology. You can go to Hodge or Dabney or or Turretin and see a long list of scripture references where angels are simply called spirits. I haven't done a statistical analysis, but it seems to me like this might be the most frequent designation for angels, that they are spirits. Just to give you uh, one very famous illustration of this, and just listen, we don't need to turn there. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Hebrews chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. So here the angels are called ministering spirits. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24 verse 39. Having called the angels spirits, and this being, if not the most common, at least a very common designation for the angels, we come now to this text in in Luke chapter 24. We'll look at verse 39. The text comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He appears to his disciples and they are afraid. And one of their concerns, they know that he has uh, been crucified, that he died, he was buried. And their first reaction seems to be that he's some sort of ghost or spirit. But I want you to notice the Lord Jesus' uh, answer to them. And he sets up an antithesis that spirit and material bodies cannot be mixed, but rather they are antithetical one to another his response to them behold my hands and my feet that it is I myself handle me and see for a spirit hath not flesh and bones as ye see me have 
So notice the antithesis that he sets up. A body is a thing that you can see and feel and handle. It's got all of the properties of matter. But the spirit does not have these properties. It's defined in another way. And it's opposite to the body in this regard. At this point, a possible objection can be raised about angels. Perhaps uh, angels are composite beings, very much like human beings that have both an immaterial spirit and a material body. So in this way, perhaps they're like a man. Uh, As uh, theologians have looked at this and reflected upon it, it hardly seems possible. And here they they take this to a place that can seem strange, but you remember in Luke chapter 8, the possession of the man by legion. Here you have a man who is occupying most of the space that a man would occupy, and he is possessed by demons that are characterized as existing in legion. Whatever else that might mean, that means that there is a lot of them inhabiting this man. So if they had bodies of any kind, uh, we begin to define them into nothingness because we start to make them, say, as small as germs or some sort of thing before it's all over. If we're going to say that there are uh, a legion of them uh, possessing and inhabiting this particular man, who is, of course, inhabiting most of his own space. You see the the difficulty or the problem. That's why I I hedge my explanation here. It hardly seems possible. If you were inclined, you you could define them into very great smallness indeed. But before it's all over, you start to define them away. And they become almost incorporeal, if not completely so. Also, if they have bodies, it becomes very difficult to explain the diversity of the descriptions of them. If we take just one class, the cherubs, in Ezekiel chapter 1, they are described uh, in one way. They have uh, bodies very much like men, but they have the four faces, uh, the face of a man and the face of an ox, in the face of, a, of um, an eagle and so on. They have wings and uh, other uh, properties and descriptions. But in the temple and tabernacle, when they are depicted, part of the mercy seat at the ark, for example, or in the uh, coverings, they appear to be depicted as men. And that's a very common way for them to make their appearance, simply in the form of a man. So if they had a body, it seems to be a most mutable one. If they had a body, you would expect that they would be described according to that body. But the several descriptions of them appear to be mostly symbolical to describe their spiritual properties rather than the description of proper bodies at all. There are also a handful of corroborating attributes that come in as evidence. They are described in the scriptures as being invisible. So here, um, 
If you were going to claim that they were material, you'd have to say that they are not open to the sight like... uh, They'd have to be like a gas or some sort of thing like that. And uh, Paul says to the Colossians, For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. So here the angels are described as invisible, something very consistent with the idea of a spiritual nature, but um, becomes more difficult to explain if they have a physical nature. They do not mate or reproduce like all of the living creatures of this world. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. Matthew 22:30, And they are described as being immortal, very much like the, the human soul. In Luke chapter 20, verse 35, They which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, neither can they die any more. For they are equal unto the angels and are the children of God being the children of the resurrection. Ultimately, you can see the difficulty in why some theologians have ended up on different sides because I'm not sure that even having presented all of that, I have at the end a conclusive proof. It just seems to me that on uh, balance, the scripture seems to indicate this. Even this is, I think, an important thing for us that uh, the scriptures, although pleased to reveal to us the existence of angels and some things about them, has also been pleased to conceal a great many things. We get a hint and an intimation, but not a full revelation. And as we've said before, when God is pleased to leave off speaking, we should be pleased to leave off asking. This does bring us back, if we're right in drawing the conclusion that they don't have corporeal bodies, that the scripture seems to be uh, indicating that they are pure spirits without material bodies, what are we to make of that old philosophical problem of their relationship to space and time? How would an immaterial spiritual being that is also finite relate to material categories of time and space. This question may have an answer, but to me it yet remains mysterious. I don't have an answer for it. But I don't see any absurdity in it either. It seems that the principle of their relationship, the relationship of these spirits to the material world of time and space, might uh, yet be hidden from us. But that doesn't imply any sort of absurdity, just an ignorance of the principle of relationship. But um, if I might say so, the assigning of material bodies to the angels is actually no solution to this problem at all. Because you still have to relate their spiritual nature to that material body in some way. We are, we are left with the very same problem with respect to our own human nature. 
And in spite of the fact that I have a human nature, I still don't have any answer to uh, how, this, how my spirit relates to this physical, material entity. I only know that it does. I have first-hand experience that it does, and yet still no explanation for how. With respect to theological method, you've heard me say this before, this is, this is very useful in a lot of ways. To know that a thing is so is step number one. The second question of how is a secondary question. If you can never answer the question, it still does not deny the fact that is so. In other words, many theological errors have arisen because people can't answer the how question. So then they deny the fact. We ought not to make that. Our composite nature is yet a great mystery to us. And yet we have first-hand experience of it. Consider this, this problem here, and you'll see that, um, that the, the older thinkers really didn't solve the problem of angels and their relationship to space and time, or the problem of spirits relating to space and time. When a man dies, his spirit is separated from his body. That spirit is a pure spirit, but upon death, that spirit does not suddenly become omnipresent or eternal. It is still related to space and time. It goes to a place that is called heaven. And it still has some awareness of the succession of time. So it's in a place and it has a time. But how is it related to space and time? If you could solve that problem for humans, then you'd have the answer for angels as well. We just know that it is so from the scriptures. I know that these things are somewhat uh, difficult but you can see how uh, angelology has gotten theologians into all sorts of uh, uh, difficulties and problems. We are uh, bumping up against things that have not been revealed and are very difficult for us uh, to understand. We move on to a very closely related issue. In spite of the fact that it seems that Scripture is teaching that angels don't have bodies, there is no doubt that they have made appearances to men. And this raises another question. If angels are spirits with no bodies, how is it that they have appeared to men? Theologians almost universally record three different kinds of appearances to men. They have sometimes appeared to men in dreams. You might think of Jacob's uh, dream at Bethel and the dream that he had about the ladder extending from earth to heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending upon it this really presents no difficulty for us because this is, was not a material body or a material anything that was striking his senses but rather symbolical ideas presented to his mind so we can set this kind of appearance aside as not being uh, uh, of any sort of immediate difficulty to us. The second kind of experience is ecstatic vision. And we need look no other place in the scripture than our text immediately ha at hand. 
Revelation chapter 5. John is having a vision. He is at this time in a rapturous ecstasy. The Spirit of God is uh, revealing all sorts of things to his mind. But again, these are symbolical representations not presented to his senses, but to his mind. And so once again, this is no problem for us with respect to the spiritual nature of angels. However, it seems that we cannot get around the fact that in the scriptures, angels made physical and tangible appearances to the people of God in ancient times. You might think of Genesis chapter 18 and the three men that visited Abraham. The New Testament reflecting upon this says that sometimes, like Abraham, men have entertained angels unawares. At first, Abraham thinks them simply to be men. All sorts of interpretive difficulties. At least two of these were angels that departed from Abraham and went down to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But these appeared to be tangible beings. Abraham feeds them. Uh, these angels take Lot and his family by the hand and lead them out. So bodies that could eat, they could be seen, they were visible, their words could be heard, their hands could be touched and felt. We are not to think that these were uh, empty specters uh, because they could be seen and uh, felt. These didn't appear to be any sort of Phantasms, the senses of the holy patriarchs did not appear to be deceived. But neither would we want to say, some of you will know this word, that these bodies were hypostatically united to the spirits of the angels themselves. That hypostatical is an adjective. It basically means personal. We have a personal union with our bodies, our spirits and our bodies unite in a personal union to make one composite or complex entity. The Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is divine nature and person took to itself a body in a hypostatical or personal union. The angels don't appear to do this. Augustine's description became uh, famous for later theology. He said that they appear to put on and put off bodies the way that human beings put on and put off garments. That they are simply dressed up in it for a time, for a particular purpose, and then they put it off again. Again, once we're bumping up against things that um, we scarcely understand and we're not told very much, this became an occasion for all sorts of other questions that ultimately I don't believe have answers. Those bodies did appear to be tangible. That's what the scriptures appear to indicate to us. But then the question, well, where did those bodies come from if the angels didn't have them before, but only for those occasions? Some have thought that maybe God created them out of nothing just for the occasion. So this would be another example of Creatio ex nihilo, a creation out of nothing by 
divine power for those particular occasions. Others thought that um, perhaps they were created from some pre-existing matter, that God created these bodies out of the dust of the ground for a limited time, perhaps like he did with Adam's body in the beginning, and then they simply dissolved again into their constituent elements at the end. Some have thought that perhaps they um, temporarily inhabited human bodies. Uh, Very much uh, maybe a a happy counterpart to the demonic possession where they would inhabit and for a limited time control human hosts. I looked at all of these things and all of the different arguments. If it has an answer, I don't know what the answer is. Again, it all appears veiled in mystery to me. If I might again return to part of the purpose for this exercise. I do want you to understand one of the reasons I do a lot of the things that I do in preaching. We do a lot of exegetical work, a lot of raw exegesis. I would say that in this, a great many preachers would not approve of my method. There's a common saying among uh, preachers, you know, the, the cook doesn't need to take his guests into the kitchen to show how he did all of the things that he did. They simply want the end, the end product. But I want you to be able to read the scriptures and understand. So I want you to observe the method. And the way that I learned the exegetical method was by reading commentaries. I watched other people do it. I got to be in the kitchen and I got to watch the breaking of the eggs and the mixing in the bowls. And so I came to understand the method to where I could begin to do it myself. And that's my great goal in a lot of my preaching. A lot of exegesis so that when you go home and you read passages as families or in private, you can imitate the methods that you have seen and understand the scriptures. But here we come to a second step of deriving theology from the texts. And one of the great difficulties in theology is that line between what can we say for sure, what things seem probable and seem to be indicated from the scripture, and when have we left off and we're simply speculating at this point. Because again, if we're going to be good theologians, we want everything that God has for us in the scripture But then we don't want to go beyond pretending to know things that we don't know. So I thought that this is a very valuable exercise. I know we're left with many. um, The sensation I get sometimes when we do this sort of thing is we've been following a string and then we came to the end of it. But But it didn't take us to a firm or certain conclusion. And that's okay. We need to recognize that that's what's happened. And then we reached a mystery. And we were able to say, well, if it has an answer, if someone is able to derive an answer, I'm just pretty sure it's not me now. And uh, if there's to be an answer to the questions that we're left with, we need need other minds operating upon the scripture who can draw sound and convincing conclusions concerning these things. So my hope is that not only will we learn things about angels, but that this will be a helpful Uh, exercise in doing sound uh, theology in an area that has always been interesting to Christian people 
but an area of great difficulty because so little has been revealed and unhappily an area of great speculation and error. In addition to this, I wanted to only draw one other use. Open with me in your Psalters to Psalm 104. One of the things I I try to do when we are looking at doctrine is uh, to consider whether or not the the Holy Spirit Himself wants us to derive any certain use from the doctrine. And the Holy Ghost's use when we consider uh, the angels is for us to worship the Creator God who made them. In other words, upon every contemplation of the angelic beings, it ought to move our hearts to worship their Creator. We will sing verses 1 through 5. Let me read verses 1 through 6, however, in the, in the King James. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, Thou art very God. Thou art clothed with honor and majesty, who coverest Thyself with light as with a garment, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, who layeth the beams of his chambers in the waters, who maketh the clouds his chariot, who walketh upon the wings of the wind, who maketh his angels spirits, his ministers a flame of fire, who laid the foundations of the earth that it should not be removed forever. Thou coveredst it with the deep as with the garment. Thou art the water stood above the mountains. The application actually comes in the very first verse. He considers the creation and then he calls upon himself. He's actually stirring himself up here. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, thou art very great. So let us stir our hearts to worship our God as we consider his greatness displayed in the creation. <clears throat> 